The study of speech and language is a complicated area. Dr. Greg Kachansky, a research fellow at the Oxford University Phonetics Laboratory, talks about how experiments in phonetics are conducted, how we study the history of language, and how speech changes over time. When you do these experiments, yeah. are you finding that you're studying speech in the experiment or speech generally? Because I imagine people talk differently when they know they're being recorded. They do and they don't, yes. We've actually done some experiments to find out if they talk the same in experiments as not. And you can find differences. It's certainly true that if you put a person in a more formal situation, they'll talk a bit differently than if, they, if they're talking informally to friends and whatnot. Informal speech really makes use of the fact that the person who's listening to you understands you better and it's, it's more abbreviated more compressed and less precise typically but if, if you more or less know what the changes are it's not a big issue because a lot of things we say don't change or at least a lot of or don't change much or a lot of aspects don't change you know your basic pronunciation for instance is more or less the same it's it's something to be aware of for sure but if experimental speech were horribly different from normal speech we wouldn't really understand ourselves in different situations. What kind of scale of data sets are you looking at? Well, a lot of the, the size of the experiments are set by uh, funding issues and how much money you can get from the research councils. Because some experiments need to be huge, uh, and if you can't get funding for them, you just can't do them. So what it ends up being is a typical experiment might have 10 or 20 people in it talking for um, an hour or two each. And that ends up being quite a lot of data, actually. It, up until recently, you weren't always worried about disk space. Our last set of experiments, so we, we have several hundred gigabytes of data and intermediate results and computations and whatnot floating around. And certainly, you, you can imagine experiments that, that would tax a, even modern computers. But it's, it's not big science in the sense of you know particle physics or astronomy, where they have whole sky surveys and things like that. It tends to be bigger science in that sense than psychology, because you can't as easily break it down into a little experiment where you're just testing a single hypothesis at once and, and your statistics are very simple sort of yes no kind of things and that's because you can't really decide what the questions are well it's partly because we can't decide what the questions are but it's also partly because language is a fairly integrated thing right if i say a sentence the way i say it is going to be de dependent on the meaning it's going to be dependent on the context it's going to be dependent on who i'm talking to so there's a lot of complexity. You can't really learn anything interesting by looking at a single word in isolation. You're always looking at interactions between things, differences between things. For instance, language evolution is an interesting application of this. One of the differences, the big difference between, say, American and British English comes from what they call the Great Vowel Shift, which happened in the more or less the 16 and 1700s. American English is actually sort of pre-vowel shift, and Southern British English is post-vowel shift. And what happens is that the A sound, or the A sound, and like words like bath turned into both, and that triggered a whole sequence of vowel shifts, sort of going around, almost around a loop. Basically, the British vowels are done with the tongue a little bit higher in the mouth, the post-vowel shift vowels. So bath is done with the mouth wide open, you know, tongue down, and both is done with the tongue rather higher up. And... The reason this whole chain of shifts happened is because when you push one vowel up, it gets too close to the next vowel. So things get confused. You'll be confusing words because now the raised ah sound is going to be too close to some other sound. Those words sort of have to get out of the way. So they push themselves somewhere. And that, of course, creates another set of confusion. 
if you like, this one initial shift propagates through the whole language, changing pronunciation of half the words, or quarter of the words, or something like that, some thousands of words in the language. It eventually stabilized, and we now have two dialects. It's not the kind of thing you can treat with a very sort of localized view. Right? That kind of thing, really, you, you got to deal with the language as a whole. So a lot of experiments you'd like to do on a very large scale, and can't for practical reasons. But you know, even the smallest experiments tend to have to deal with interactions and catch a lot of context and catch a lot of, of the real world. Language sort of touches all kinds of bits of our humanity. It's a good view. You know, it, it gives you a good view of what's going on in the brain compared to many things. Well, you know, you can compare it to fMRI, right, where you see which areas of the brain are active. And that's, that's a beautiful technique. It certainly tells you things you can't learn by listening to a person. But on the other hand, if you listen to the person, you, you certainly learn some things that are going on in their brain, or at least the, the ones they want you to know about. And language has evolved as a human mechanism for, well, for many things. But one of them is letting your friends know what's going on inside. Um, I mean, the other things that language is used for are, you know, power games and um, pushing people around and whatnot. And, but it certainly gives you a, a view of the inside of the brain that has some value. Going back to the change of language, why do languages evolve? And how do we know that languages in the past have changed? How do we track the <clears throat> history of languages? Ah, well, that's one of the way, good ways that we know that languages have evolved is that uh, people write grammar books. You, you find grammar books from a, quite a variety of cultures, actually. The Romans did them. And by 1600, 16-something, you had you know Ben Johnson writing his dictionary and other you know, people were fairly sophisticated here. But in fact, there's a uh, there's a grammar book done by a guy named Panini in India in uh, 1200 BC, which is is remarkably modern in many respects. It, it talks about how to pronounce things and, and what words go together in various ways, and the like of it was not seen again until really the Greeks and the Romans did a few, and then. But of course, you got Chinese grammar books popping up here and there, quite early also. Language is something that people like to write about partly because it's considered important from a social class point of view and a social interaction point of view. People realize very rapidly that if you if you don't speak with the group, you're considered an outsider. People don't want to be outsiders, so they worry about how to talk and give advice about how to speak and whatnot. Partly you track changes by grammar books, and partly spelling is, in many languages, except for English, really, spelling is pretty well connected with uh, the way people speak. English has one of the more complicated and horrific spelling letter-to-sound rules of any language. But that's partly because English spelling is frozen in the 1600s uh, and in the English language has continued to evolve. So if you read your letters fairly literally, you're speaking the language of Queen Elizabeth I. And if you read them in the modern way, you can speak the language of Queen Elizabeth II, right? You also get some clues from poetry and things like that. That's a complicated issue because poetic standards have changed. For instance, everyone thinks of rhymes at the end as being the standard of poetry, but in English up until 1400 or so, it was alliterative poetry. Beowulf, for instance, since at the beginning of the word, has to match in strong positions. And Gawain and the Green Knight is very much that way, and a few others. So poetry can give you clues, but it's complicated because you have to understand the rules of the poetry of the culture. Oh, and, and also you get uh, people writing about foreign languages. So that's a fairly common thing that people have done throughout history. Not always in a very informed way, but sometimes very perceptively, talking about all the funny ways that foreigners speak. 
that can give you a clue about both the way the foreigners speak and the way the writer would speak, because obviously they're not the same if it's, if it's funny. That's sort of historical linguistics, and Oxford is one of the few places where, where people do much of that anymore. Well, people do modern language change in a variety of ways, but historical language change is, has been a field that's been going for quite a while. It's sort of, well, gotten quiet, if you like, but probably it's not high-tech, I don't know. But anyhow, Oxford still has a good group doing useful stuff in it. It actually provides a lot of important data for how languages change and evolve, and that's, that's, a, that's one of the important questions in linguistics, but not one we really have an answer to because, because there's a lot of complicated issues in it. Well, on a very basic level... Yeah. Why are the differences between different languages? And do they all have a common root? Or are there several common roots? Ah, well, common root. Yeah, well, no one knows. We know all the Indo-European languages probably have a common root. Indo-European languages are basically Caucasus and most of Europe and, well, India. You can trace back the connections between languages only so far before they get lost in the noise. Languages change enough over a, over a couple thousand years that the connections between languages just become unclear. And languages are always borrowing from other languages and things like that. But back in the, back in the 1800s, people realized that there are strong relationships, say, between English and German and English and French and French and, and Latin and French and Italian you know, words like father versus pater. There are a whole bunch of similarities which you could pull together with a few simple rules to show that here's a set of words and the language has changed by changing a few rules about how you pronounce them. And that explains quite a lot of, of similarities. And you can trace similarities in the grammar and stuff too. But it's, it's pretty clear that you can really only look back three or 4,000 years that way. Uh, and, and it gets pretty fuzzy at, at the end. So languages that have split off Less recently than that, you just can't say you know, how they're connected. We have no idea, for instance, what, if any, connection there is between Japanese or Mandarin Chinese and English. There are similarities, there are differences, and it's just lost in the mists of time. Is it feasible to assume that there was a connection at some stage? Well, people have worked on the question of when human language evolved, and it's pretty clear it, it evolved a lot more than 4,000 years ago. I think people are talking about sort of 100,000 years ago kind of uh, timescales. So it's easy to imagine lots of history going on in there. And for a lot of human history, people were fairly separated, each in their own little village with not that much commerce from village to village. And that is a situation that grows languages. You can still see that today in places like New Guinea. Now, the highlands of New Guinea are, are the home of more than half of the world's languages. And in a little smallish geographical area, and that's because basically it, there are no roads, very rough terrain, so people hardly go beyond their neighboring villages. And over time, changes in the language just accumulate differently in each village until they more or less become mutually unintelligible, and then you have a new language. As long as it's mutually intelligible, there's sort of a glue holding you together. But once it becomes too hard to figure out what the other person is saying, there's no reason to keep the languages the same at all, and they just drift off in other directions, because there's just so many directions that you can change a language. So that, that scenario could have happened for millennia. People have tried to do mathematical models of language evolution, and with some success, but so far the modeling that they've been doing has been basically based on biological genetics, and that's not more than part of it, right? Languages not only evolve, just like species of all, right? You know, you get your genes from your parents, and they got theirs from their parents and whatnot, so you can track a tree 
but in language you you borrow you know someone comes and conquers you and leaves a bunch of words or you just go trading with someone and they've got some new toy out there and you come up with a word for the toy or a word for the technique or whatnot so language evolution is not just a case of people living in the same village and year after year and the language drifting it's also a case of some word could just sweep a whole continent because some idea sweeps the continent so it's it's also tied in with politics and history and you know invasions and commerce and technology and all kinds of things. Well, that brings us nicely to talk about the relationship between mathematics and phonetics, because traditionally there doesn't seem to be an association. It's more humanities oriented. Well, we kind of are humanities and we kind of are science. I mean, phonetics is the experimental end of linguistics. Um, linguistics is a very broad field, which really goes from on one end people doing articulatory models with computers, looking at muscles moving and aerodynamics, and on the other end, really sort of philosophy and cognitive science and that kind of thing. And, and obviously, some ends of the field are more mathematical than others. And we are a humanities in the sense that we are, are trying to understand you know, how people think and explain the human condition, and language is a big chunk of the human condition. It's the glue that keeps us from being locked in, into our own little heads. But on the other hand, some corners of linguistics, we understand well enough that you can start applying the techniques of science to the questions that we do understand, and those ends end up being fairly mathematical. We have a current project, or just finished project, where we're looking at tongue position and tongue motion in MRI machines. And, and we're taking that data, and we, you're trying to, to test linguistic theories. Chomsky has this feature-based representation of language, and, and people have built on it, talking about feature spreading and things like that, and can turn that kind of broad theoretical description into a set of mathematical models, actually. It turns into turns into more than 200 mathematical models if you want to capture most of the possibilities and, and test them on the data, see which ones work. And, you know, we, we can eliminate a lot of possibilities as being not a suitable explanation of the data. And that's a sort of state-of-the-art approach to linguistics that hasn't really caught on yet, and we're, we're sort of, we're hoping it will. I mean, it should. It's a, it's a sort of scientific approach to linguistics, if you like. And it's only possible now, basically, because we have enough computer power that, A, we can do the image processing, we can figure out where the tongue is, we can evaluate the mathematical models, and not just one, right? Language is complex enough. It's hard or impractical to do a uh, precise theory. So you end up with fairly broad theories, and if you want to try to make them precise, you end up with a lot of options. For instance, one of the models we're looking at involves features like high and low to specify the position of the tongue. And some things are unspecified. And if they're unspecified, what do you do? Well, some people say that you grab the feature to the left, the feature that hasn't happened yet, the one that you're planning to do. Uh, and, and the other say that you hold on to the past, right? If the tongue was high, you keep it high until you need to move it somewhere else. So there's two options. Now you combine that with a few other options, and you end up with four or six, and you combine that with something else, and you end up with 12 or 24. And the, the number of detailed models you have just expands immensely because you have a whole bunch of choices to make which aren't really specified by the linguistic theories. But you have to specify in order to turn it into a concrete model that you can test. So we're doing it brute force and ignorance. We're testing them all. That's sort of really the difference between a, a lot of linguistics and a lot of science. I mean, science more or less operates following the rules that were, well, not laid out, but first written down by Karl Popper's, which is that basically you come up with a hypothesis, and you make predictions with the hypothesis, and you test it. And if it works, good. You can try testing it again. 
And if it doesn't work, you throw away the hypothesis and you go off, do something else. It's a very evolutionary approach. It's a very competitive approach between ideas. If the idea makes a prediction and the prediction works, it's good. If it doesn't make a prediction, it's not very useful. And if it doesn't work, it's junk. And that works if you can make specific predictions. The trouble with a lot of linguistics is it's complex and messy and squishy subject a little bit. And even if you have a, a theoretical view of things, it's hard to translate that into predictions. And so it's hard to test models. And so a lot of these theoretical predictions coexist. And you don't have the high level of competition between ideas. It's very much of a cultural thing. I started out in physics. Physics, you know, if, if somebody says, this is my model, he's implicitly saying everybody else's model is wrong. In linguistics, it's more, this is my view of things. I can represent things this way. And someone else can have a representation. And they're not the same, but they coexist. They're not really considered to be in conflict because, in fact, it's relatively hard to translate them into specific predictions to actually find out if they are in conflict or not. So anyhow, we've found a few cases where you can, where you can, where you can translate linguistic theories, viewpoints, into a co collection of models, and then we can test the collection of models and find out which ones fly and which ones fail. And sometimes you find that one theoretical viewpoint leads to models which more or less universally fail, and then you can throw it out. That's sort of, I think, the hope for progress in the field. Now, it won't always work, because sometimes a linguistic viewpoint will give you some successes and some failures, and then life gets complicated and messy. But that's not always going to be the case, and when, when you do get a fairly clear-cut answer, then you've learned something, really. Learn something that you can't do just by sitting there theorizing and thinking about language. Is it possible to predict what changes will occur in language in the future? In practice, certainly not at our current level of understanding. We have a little bit of understanding of how languages change, but the understanding we have is more driven by overlap of things. The need to be clear and the need to not confuse people you're talking to. So we understand the process basically where something moves and it bumps into something else and pushes it. But why things move is driven by a lot of factors, including who's got the social status and a lot of, you know, fashion things and cultural things. And in, at any moment, there are people who speak a bunch of different dialects in the UK. And if the status of one group rises, by and large, the language will tend to shift in their direction or at least some aspects of language will shift in their direction. But if you want to be strictly strictly mercenary about it, you can't predict who's going to win unless you know who's going to be the top dog. And, uh, and even then, television shows can make certain bits of language important, interesting, nifty. And little weird little things, weird little fads, you know, that 20, 30 years ago there was a, a pet rock fad in the U.S. Where, where you could buy for Christmas a little plastic box with a, a window in it and a rock and, you know, sort of a set up as a terrarium so you could have your pet rock. And for God knows what reason, people would pay real money for these things. And it's just a fad. It's, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that seems like a good idea at the time, but a few years later it may seem less of a good idea. But particular words work that way, too. I mean, like uh, people say not after sentences. 
And that just happened a few years ago, and it may or may not last, but I can't imagine coming up with a prediction of that in advance. What about the pace of language evolution now? Is it still changing at quite a rapid pace? Yes. There were predictions back 50 or 100 years ago that, that we would all speak the same language and speak the same dialect because of television and audio recording. And, and in fact, people predicted that language evolution would stop because of tape recorders, or maybe it was even wire recorders, because we, we would be able to hear the way the previous generation spoke and we would want to speak that way. Well, we indeed can hear the way the previous generation speak, but we don't actually have any particular desire to speak that way. That, that may be a teenage thing. Um, and, and interestingly enough, dialects haven't gone away. Dialects seem as strong now as they were, or maybe not quite as strong, but dialects are doing very well in the UK and in the US. And I think one of the factors that wasn't expected was that people make a distinction between the languages they understand and the languages they produce. And everyone understands the sort of standard dialects of English, but that doesn't mean that they necessarily want to produce them. Partly it's a social thing, right? Partly you, you want to sound like your friends, and, if, and uh, if your friends have a particular dialect, well, that's what you'll produce, even though you understand that and six or eight other varieties of English quite well. I had a, a general question about when we have ideas in the mind, they can be expressed verbally in a very different way. The process between the thought of the idea and producing it in speech, mm -hmm. what's involved there? Well, quite a lot. <laughs> You know, there's, there's certainly not a simple connection but between how we think and language. From a neurological point of view, there's a lot of steps involving motion planning, and, and before that you construct a sentence and you have to worry about what words you're going to use. How do we fill in the gaps of broken or misheard speech? Yeah, well, language has a lot of redundancy, sort of acoustically and also at, a, at the syntactic level. For instance, if you look at Latin, you have a bunch of cases. And if you look at French, every noun is either masculine or feminine. And if you look at English, you have plurals carried through from the noun to the verbs. And I have this, they have that. That's not a good example, but but uh, you have to you have to have plural uh, agreement on plurals and agreement on cases and agreement on gender. All those properties are really redundancy. They're in there to allow error correction and error detection on the part of the listener. So if I say something that starts plural and it doesn't end plural, you immediately know that you misheard something or I misspoke something or something's gone wrong. And likewise, in Latin, if you mess up the cases, the, the listener knows that something's gone wrong and can go back and ask for corrections or can realize that I misunderstood somewhere. I need to fill it in from context. And of course, sometimes we just get confused. Sometimes we don't understand what the other person is saying for a variety of reasons. But this redundancy also occurs at the acoustic level. There's some good experiments showing that the, the way you pronounce one sound affects the, uh, the pronunciation of, of the neighboring sounds, even sometimes more than a syllable away. So that, for instance, this is especially relevant if someone's hammering, right? When the hammer blows completely destroy the particular sound underneath the hammering but you have a lot of information from the neighboring sounds, and to some extent you can reconstruct it just by saying that 
That sounded as if his mouth was wide open at the end of the syllable. So presumably his mouth was wide open in the middle of the syllable. So I can figure out what the vowel was, even though I didn't actually hear it. Because the vowel changes the consonants near it. And that's an automatic process. And that's an automatic process, yeah. The, the experiments on this are done by basically replacing bits of speech with white noise. And you can re replace a remarkable amount of speech with white noise and still extract meaning from it. I did this experiment once where we were trying to compare performance of speech recognition systems with, with humans. And the idea would be you'd take a five-digit number and replace increasing amounts of it with white noise. So it'd be like, well, I can't really do it, but, it, you know, two, one, three, three, four, one, five. And if you left little gaps in the white noise, you could actually replace 90% of the utterance with noise, and people would still get it right half the time. You have to have fairly small little slices, and the little slices that you hear have to be close enough together so that they give you a, a little bit of a clue to more or less each digit. But it's a very freaky experiment, because you listen to this, and you are absolutely convinced you're, you're just guessing. right? You, you know you can't possibly understand this. It's, it basically, you know, it's just... <laughs> but then you guess, and you find that half the time this, you got this five-digit number right. And, and, I mean, I tried it myself because I didn't believe the results, you know. And, and it, it's really psychologically a very interesting process. You don't even know you're gluing the pieces back together and, and making a guess. But it works quite remarkably well. And, and that's a case where it's just the acoustic context. Well, not quite because you know the, the number names. There's only a few possible number names. So if you hear a v sound, you know it's certainly seven. There's a seven around there. If you hear a n sound, that's probably a 9 or a 1, I guess. Small clues can give you a lot of information in a restricted environment like that. But, uh, yeah, it all happens automatically. You don't even know what's happening. It's quite remarkable. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that goes on up in the brains that one is not really aware of. That's why we do experiments, because you can't realize these things just by thinking about them.